Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. For this episode, we have Head of Product Nikki Eggers talking to Ian Aylward, Head of Fund Selection, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, about a way to save the rainforest, the link between air pollution and crime, and what companies and economists can do to help save the world. Hello, welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. As seems to be quite usual at the moment, we're coming to you amidst a blizzard of news flow. We're seeing stock markets in the US continue to rise amidst evidence of a continued global economic recovery from the first half slump we saw. But worries are really growing about the return to school in September, the winter flu season, and and so on, and sort of local lockdowns, etc. So This week, we're going to take a look at another of this planet's greatest challenges and how this crisis might actually be helping us a little. To do that, I'm joined this week by Ian Elwood. He's the man responsible for actually putting money where mouths are in terms of responsible investing, which we have talked to you listeners and subscribers about before. He leads a team who's involved in managing our multi-impact growth fund. Um, And Ian will explain what that is. Um, But we are very rightly proud about this fund. We'll also have Will, as usual, to give us the slant from the wider team of economists and strategists that that devote a lot of time and energy to this subject, amongst others, of course. So, Will, let's start off with you. Um, A number of issues have really come to the fore in this crisis, from health, societal, environmental. It's, It's helpful in some senses that these issues are so in the foreground, but now we've got to work out how to actually tackle them more effectively. What can economists do about this? Yeah, uh, hello, Nikki. Hi, hi Ian. Um, and I think economists would see this as um, uh, as a problem most easily, easily solved through the prism of kind of incentives. Um, essentially, you can't just ask beg, shout at someone uh, to do something, as we all know with our children, Um, you have to bring in a financial reward or penalty. Um, Money's not the only motivation, obviously, but it's one of the sort of more catch-all motivations, according to economists. So you think about the Amazon rainforest, for example. So right now we are clearing this unbelievably biodiverse, crucially important store of carbon uh, in exchange for some of the least productive cattle pastures on the planet, famously so. But the people living around the Amazon, you know, these the ones sort of responsible um, for doing this, in a sense, uh, are not deliberately thumbing their nose up at Greta or, you know, all that kind of thing. These are some of the poorest people on the planet trying to survive, you know, by any means. So effectively, someone has to pay the farmers not, not, to, not to farm in that way. How, how can that work in practice? Well, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, the problem you have, in a sense, is turning deforestation uh, into a tangible financial cost today so that you can make a comparison with the advantages and disadvantages uh, of turning rainforest into that low-quality cattle pasture. A lot of work has been done on this uh, by many of the planet's greatest minds, I'd say. Um, the, the first sort of least contentious assumption you make is that there is about um, there are about 100 billion tons of carbon stored in the rainforest, which if you send it into the air all at once, that would represent about 400 billion tons of CO2, uh, essentially to uh, you know 10 years of global emissions. Now we know that that would be catastrophic. Um, you know, it would be catastrophic for our attempts at kind of curtailing the rise in global temperatures. But but how do we price it? That's the key. Well. 
what we've got now, and there's some interesting developments here. There's some newish toys uh, these uh, these very clever people have got, and they've got something called um, integrated assessment models. Uh, and these take as much of the relevant information as possible um, and try and explore the cost to the planet of things like an increase in the number of 90 degree days, um, particularly in some of the sort of more vulnerable countries. Now, I'm obviously cutting a lot of corners here, otherwise we'll, have, we'll be here for hours. But the upshot is that the social cost of a ton of carbon comes out at about $50. Now, if you then say that a hectare of land, bear with me, uh, you know, which is just less than 2.5 acres, cleared for cattle uh, ranching, that sells for less than $1,000, um, you can start to compare. So based on that first assumption that you make, that there are 100 billion tons of carbon stored in the whole rainforest, then one hectare of preserved rainforest is worth $28,000 to us today. So that comparison just shows you just, you know, this is an economics problem in many sense. It's a markets problem. It's a bad trade we're making. Um, now, you are actually seeing some global to and fro on this, uh, particularly Brazil, where a lot of the sort of, you know, the rainforest sits um, and other nations. Um, there is a price to be paid, the argument goes. Um, and, and, you know, many are arguing that it's well worth our while to pay it. Wow. So, Ian, I bet, hi, by the way, I bet you're itching to come in here. Absolutely. So I think, I think thinking of our multi-impact growth fund, which you touched on at the beginning, you know, as a reminder, that is our fund of fund um, offering that invests in a huge number of, of equities and bonds from companies that are you know, actively involved in improving you know, the lot of society and the environment you know, across a range of different activities. Um, you know, has some really interesting companies in there. Um, as you'd imagine, the focus of this fund does lead to a carbon footprint of those companies that is well below that of, of global equities in general, as you might measure that using the MSCI World Index, for example. By that, I mean the carbon dioxide emitted by all the firms held in the fund is more than 20% less. Now, clearly, as we've been talking about, reducing carbon emissions is a massive step forward towards addressing the challenges of climate change. Now, for those who'd like the numbers, the fund's carbon footprint is 147 tonnes of CO2 per dollar of sales. What that actually means, and to give us a frame of reference, is that that 20% reduction is actually equivalent to removing, say, eight cars from the road each year, or stopping almost five million smartphones being charged, or indeed wow. the carbon that is sequestrated from 48 acres of forest in just a year. It's wow. That, I mean, that really does bring to life, you know, when, when you stop to think, well, you know, the things, what little things can I do that's really going to make a difference? But when you bring it to life like that, um, that, that feels tangible. Um, it's amazing, goodness. isn't okay. it? It's it, amazing. It and, and, oh, just to jump, jump in, I mean, so, yeah. you know, i sorry, I, I, I've, it's a really interesting subject, this. And I think, you know, because in a way, like what we got to persuade people is why we don't just need to do all of this. Uh, for the sheen of our, you know, of our halos, um, or absence of one. But I, I saw, you know, and on this subject, this is going to sound weird, but I saw one really interesting paper that has found a robust causal link between air pollution and crime. So this is looking at London statistics, and you may wonder how on earth have they done that? Well, I'll go into it. Well, what they've done is they've looked, they've looked at a load of things. But one of the more interesting methods, I thought, is to do with um, how dense clouds of pollution are blown around the city Entirely at random, obviously. Now, what the paper finds is that where these clouds go, 
crime rises by a non-trivial amount. Now, I mean, obviously, we're always telling people to be wary of spurious correlation. Uh, I think one of the team, Luke Pierce, used uh, the example of the near-perfect correlation over the last decade between U.S. cheese uh, per capita cheese consumption um, and deaths from bedsheet tanglings. Uh, to make the point, you know, in another way, it's amazing. Honestly, there's a great website for all of these kind of things. But the point here is that the causal relationship looks surprisingly robust. It, it's, um, you know, that is still. Um, you know, it, it, there's still investigation as to why it would be the case. But, you know, some are speculating that the effect of air pollution on you know, stress hormones, I think cortisone is the relevant one, but some better informed listener will no doubt be able to correct me. But again, it's about trying to make the effects, the effects of this stuff um, more tangible today. We are, you know, as we all know, capable of being a very nearsighted species. Um, this crisis may be helping to sort of lengthen our vision a little bit, which is very helpful. But, um, but you know, these, these are just some of the things that I think we can think about. Wow. And, and just to be clear, I wasn't laughing at the idea of somebody dying by twisted bedsheets. It was more it was more the link the cheese between cheese. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm in severe danger at the moment, I have to say. And if that's the, oh, well, if I, if there I is a real say, link. I thought, I thought you could probably rest easy given it's not fried chicken consumption. But uh... <laughs> cheese, is, cheese is up there too, sadly. <laughs> so so that externalities piece that, that you were talking about there, Will, is, mm. is really interesting because I know a lot of people are agitating around how to think about the wider impact companies are having across, you know, a wide range of measures. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. So, so I mean, this is something, you know, Robin Ian, much better speaking in this space is, is you know, the real genuine experts. But um, something I was sort of looking at the other day um, was, uh, or following was a guy called Ronald Cohen, who argues that we are now at a similar point of, um, you know, potential epiphany um, on this front as we were back in 1929. So, Pre-1929, um, U.S. and global, I think global companies, but U.S. companies definitely, were allowed to c- submit the accounts their consciences dictated. Um, oh. You know, they pick their own. Yeah, I know. It's amazing, isn't it? Uh, you can really yeah. just submit the numbers you like. Uh, so they pick their own accounting principles. There's no um, uh, no auditors. Now, after the great crash, investors stood up almost as one and demanded something more believable. So 1933 was born the U.S. Uh, government-mandated um Uh, you know, the US government mandated gap, the generally agreed accounting principles. Now, his point is that you are now on the cusp of a similar revolution in terms of companies reporting an environmental social impact in an agreed format, properly audited, helping to put, you know, impact alongside profits at the centre of our economic uh, system. He puts it rather catchily, you know, ending the tyranny of profits. Uh, He rather memorably puts it in his uh, his book. So, So from what Will's saying there, there isn't any singular way of doing this. So, Ian, when when you and the team are looking at including um, companies or funds that will generate positive impact, how do you actually go around measuring that when when it comes to the funds that that you guys are running? Actually, you know, it is really difficult. The, the three most obvious issues, it appears to me, are one, gathering relevant data in the first place. Then, you know, we have to crunch the data and, to make sense and then you know, present it in a clear and digestible manner. I mean, just talking about that, you know, <laughs> as I run through that, you realise how, how, how challenging it can be. And that there simply are no common standards in place for this yet. You know, and that is in stark contrast, you know, to the financial reporting and accounts um, that we were just mentioned about, you know, gap, the, you know, the, uh, the profit and loss account, the cash flow statement, the balance sheet. Right. Um, in actual fact, that's why when you look at the Multi-Impact Growth Fund annual report, 
you see more examples perhaps of case studies from across the underlying managers rather than aggregate metrics at, at the fund level. And actually, you know, the carbon footprint that I mentioned earlier is the exception you know, currently that proves that rule. That's, that's certainly not to say that firms aren't trying, of course. And, and Barclays is actually a great example. It publishes an annual ESG report that runs to over 100 pages. You know, it's an amazing tome that covers everything from the social, for example, you know, paying suppliers promptly or our gender pay gap, right through to the environmental, for example, setting out how we aim to be a net zero bank. Yeah, so, so are we taking any steps with our fund reporting to actually address this gap, Ian? What, what can we do? Yeah, yeah, we, we absolutely are. Now, you know, the industry is definitely moving in this direction, and so are we. You know, we subscribe to a database from a firm called MSCI, and they capture literally hundreds of thousands of ESG data points you know, right across the globe from equity issuers and bond issuers. So you know, let me try and bring that to life. You know, from, from toxic emissions and packaging materials under the environmental E, through the data security and labour relations of the social S, to the pay and board metrics under the governance G, you know, a wide gamut of, of these relevant data points. Mm. And we in the team are nearing completion of a project to aggregate this data across the holdings within all our funds, you know, not just the multi-impact growth fund, in order to then present it on our fact sheets. And obvious examples of that, I think, will include the carbon footprint, um, water intensity measures, you know, or, or most simply, you know, just the average uh, company rating um, that is held from MSCI. Got it. And, and so can you maybe bring to life an example of, say, an investment that is held or has made it into the multi-impact growth fund? Sure. So um, perhaps going back to, to the, you know, the conversation um, around air pollution and carbon emissions, I think electric vehicles are a really neat example. You know, we will all recall that in the initial months of lockdown, you know, here in the UK, there was a dramatic drop-off in particulates and other pollutants in the air. Um, and with working from home, the norm uh, for those who are fortunate enough uh, to be able to do so and most, shop closed, most shops closed, there were far less cars on the road. Yeah. Now, imagine just how much cleaner our air would permanently be as this legacy carpool is replaced by electric vehicles. Whilst we actually do have the poster child for this space, I guess Tesla, within the fund, um, there are already so many column inches written about this, I thought I might highlight a smaller firm that we also hold called Active. Uh, now, this Irish company produces vital electronic connectors and cabling uh, that go into electric vehicles. Specifically, they sit within their drive trains. Now, just a word on this term, this is the term that captures all the cleaner bits like inverter, circuit board, the battery, that are replacing all the dirty bits of a traditional fossil fuel guzzling petrol or diesel engine. Okay, yeah, I mean, I must admit I've not heard of Active before, so it's so great to hear that example brought to life. Um, and, and as always, this isn't a recommendation to any listeners to go out and buy this. Um, it's, it's held within a diversified um, fund. Um, so, well, just to finish off with, on a slightly different tack, um, I'm hearing a lot of questions from our, our teams and from clients on the UK GDP figure that we saw last week why it was worse for the UK than other countries and, and why are we seeming to be sort of quite so sanguine about the risks of, of financial depression? 
Yeah, I mean, we put a note out on this on on LinkedIn for anyone who's interested. But I think I think I think you know, paraphrasing, I think the point we'd make on recession comparisons between countries and relative to history is to hold off. Um, what matters for all of us, uh, for companies, for consumers, investors, in, uh, is really the cumulative decline in output, not just the shocking descent, uh, which we're seeing evidence of now coming in in the sort of you know the mainstream data. This is going to take a while to find out. Um, so what I would say is that the policy response around the world, and this is something the team has commented on a lot, really is different um, and does show a real appreciation um, of the lessons from history, both recent and more distant. Um, if you look at the Great Depression in the 1930s, um, you can see a huge part of the problem is policy error, the problem of inaction for much of it, um, particularly with regards to you know ensuring the banking sector could continue to function. This time around, um, you know there really has been a, a really vigorous and decisive response. That's not to say we're out of the woods by any stretch. You know, there's a long way to go. Um, you know, there's there's much. You know, as you've alluded to at the beginning, there's some really tricky tricky challenges ahead. But but beware. Pat comparisons. I think that's the sort of basic point I'd make. Good stuff. So, um, listen, just just leaves me to say a huge thank you, Ian. Um, really interesting to hear about the impact area. It feels like something that that we'll be talking uh, and rightly so more and more about. Um, yep. Certainly, it feels like an area that many of us need better understanding and, and insights on um, and and so thank you so much for for bringing that to life and will as always for your um, for your words of wisdom around what's what's happening in the economy and, and markets um, so thank you very much to our listeners and subscribers thank you for joining us and we'll be back again next week all investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance this podcast is not a personal investment recommendation